0: Welcome to Your Health Guide, your how-to prescription for better health, translating cutting-edge research for your everyday life. Join naturopath and health educator, Lawrence Katsaris, for practical tips and insights to help you on your wellness journey. Welcome back to Your Health Guide. I'm your host, Lawrence Katsaris, and today I wanted to bring you a special episode dedicated to the COVID-19 pandemic. I thought given the situation in the world at the moment, It's worth spending some time on helping you understand the facts around this infection. So in this episode, we're going to discern between the facts and fiction, help you understand what you need to be doing to keep yourself safe, and giving you some practical solutions to help yourself and your family. So starting off firstly, by now a lot of people have probably heard that the COVID 19 or the coronavirus is not the first coronavirus that you've actually seen in the world. In fact, there's actually seven different types of coronaviruses that we've been known to affect humans in the past. Now, four of these have been normal kind of infections that have given mild flu, upper respiratory type infections and symptoms. And they haven't been problematic, they've been fairly similar to the common cold. Two coronaviruses have been more serious diseases though this is SARS that we were probably familiar with back in 2003 which was severe acute respiratory syndrome and another was MERS which was middle east respiratory syndrome which i think came around about 2012 now both of these produced some health scares in the past but what's different about those coronaviruses with covid-19 is that covid-19 is a different strain from that family it's been it's undergone some mutations and that means that the body's unable to recognize it as quickly and effectively as some of our uh, previous infections in the past. So, this particular COVID 19 is called the SARS CoV 2, or more appropriately called the COVID 19, as it originated in 2019 from Wuhan in China. Now, as I started to say, what makes that different, the COVID, to the previous corona infections, is that this virus has changed and it's able to bind to receptors within our cells. And in some individuals, binding to these particular receptors within the cell actually creates a massive inflammatory response, which is uncontrolled by the body. Now, ordinarily, when your body gets an infection, we want to start an inflammatory response. That's what produces some of those symptoms like the fever or the mucus or the classic signs and symptoms we associate with a, a common infection. The problem with COVID is that the inflammation becomes unregulated. And like most things in the body, it needs to be balanced. So this inflammation is uncontrolled and it produces what's known as a cytokine storm. Now, cytokines are molecules in our bodies that create inflammation. So it's basically a cytokine storm is a huge uncontrolled inflammatory response, which then starts to cause massive cellular and tissue damage. And that's what causes the consequences in COVID-19. The other problem with COVID-19 is almost on the other end of the spectrum where a lot of people who are becoming infected with it actually have no symptoms at all. And this is known as being asymptomatic. So it makes it harder to know if someone has that infection. Where something like SARS or MERS, for instance, it would typically produce uh, symptoms straight away. And that person would then know that they need to quarantine, need to seek medical attention. Where what we're seeing with This new novel strain of coronavirus, the COVID, is that individuals can be infected and they actually won't demonstrate any of those symptoms. They will carry it around and then be able to pass it on to someone and the next person who becomes infected may actually then start to experience that massive inflammatory response, which starts to be life-threatening for them. Now, in saying that, most people from the world who have been exposed to COVID-19, 80% of people have had very mild symptoms. About 15% of people have had more severe respiratory complications. And unfortunately, it has been um, critical in about 2-3% of the population. Now, in terms of um, putting that into perspective with other infections, I've heard that some people saying, look the common flu uh, that goes around every year, it kills X thousands of people every year and coronavirus has only killed you know so many thousands of people. Now, it is true that the flu does obviously kill, um, tragically kill um, some people through the year, but when you look at the percentage of people that get the flu and then you look at the percentage of people that then suffer fatalities from that, it's actually a very low percentage. However, what makes it different versus COVID is that the percentages uh, of individuals is a little bit higher. So not to say that it is, you know, as uh, difficult as potentially other infections like, you know, we've had Ebola or um, we had the avian flu. Some of these had, you know, quite contagious and um, they produced some high fatalities as well. But when we start to look at COVID-19, Just be making sure that you're discerning through the facts there because I have seen thrown around on social media um, probably more in the early stages a couple of weeks ago that people were saying, oh, look, put it in perspective, the flu flu kills more people. The difference is that people know that they've got the flu and the difference is that it's very rare that the flu actually does affect individuals. So how is it that individuals are transmitting COVID? Well, it's being spread through infected droplets from um, people's saliva or their mucus so for instance when someone coughs or sneezes or wipes their nose and then touches surfaces the the fluids from our body those infected droplets can remain on those surfaces for quite some time so to give you perspective about this if someone sneezes and they don't cover themselves uh, properly those droplets can spread actually for four meters hopefully most people are covering their mouths when they're sneezing so that doesn't take place If someone does cover their mouth and they sneeze into their hand or at any given point in time they've blown their nose or you know, wipe their nose or touch their their face or their mouth, and then they touch a surface, they're still able to spread, if they're infected, they're still able to spread that virus through those infected droplets. Now, that can last on surfaces for quite some time. So to give you some perspective on this, it's been found that it can last on cardboard for 24 hours. It's been found that it will last on plastic and stainless steel for up to two to three days. And it can last airborne just lingering around in the air for actually up to three hours. This is why it's so important that the governments have been encouraging people to be constantly washing their hands and practicing extra hygiene vigilance. Because if you happen to be touching a surface that a person who was infected touched yesterday, you could still get the virus. And then when you touch your face or you wipe your nose, you can basically put it into yourself. So this is why we need the highly aware of making sure that when you are out in public that you're taking some protective measures and constantly be washing your hands and practicing that vigilant hygiene and making sure that you're keeping your distance from individuals whereas that social distancing of that 1.5 meters is, is coming into play and i'll talk more about that in a second now in saying this This is spread from a person, so when they're sick, but as I mentioned before, some people will actually be infected but will not actually be displaying symptoms. And this is what can make COVID so tricky because the person can be walking around, they may have like a very mild scratchy throat or they may just feel a little bit under the weather, but otherwise they feel fine. Then they can be walking around and they may be touching surfaces, sneezing or whatever, and then that could infect the next individual. So the most common symptoms that we're starting to see from this new coronavirus is fever is one of the most discerning um, symptoms. Uh, Dry cough and shortness of breath are very common symptoms of this. Other common symptoms are uh, sore throat and fatigue is fairly common. So we can kind of feel a little bit like a common flu. It doesn't produce a lot of mucus, though. So to differentiate it from a normal respiratory infection is in coronavirus, you wouldn't normally be seeing this person has a lot of congestion in their sinuses and are needing to blow their nose or have a very mucusy, chesty cough. It's quite the opposite. It's more of a drier situation. So it tends to be more that fever that dry, scratchy throat, dry cough, and then you can start to experience other things like the fatigue. Some people may actually start to get gastrointestinal symptoms like diarrhea as well. Some people can also start to lose their sense of smell, um, can happen before the onset. But as I mentioned, about 80% of people that have coronavirus have very mild symptoms. And so for most people, it's not problematic. The problems and the concerns that come around because of this pandemic is it being passed on and potentially unknowingly through the population. And then we've got certain people who are at risk of becoming um, and having more serious complications from this infection. So those people are people over the age of 50. And that was very well known at the beginning when it was coming out from China. They were very much talking about the awareness of the at-risk individuals being you know, a little bit more in the elderly population. However, what we're starting to see now is it's not just a condition that affects the elderly. We still see that a lot of individuals can end up with quite severe complications from it. The next group to be very aware of that need to be Highly diligent and you want to be making sure you're taking all the protective measures are people that suffer from cardiovascular disease or cardiometabolic disorders. So this is things like high blood pressure. This is things like being overweight or being obese. This is things like type 2 diabetes. So what happens is that in these conditions, what's driving that condition to occur in you means that there is this low-grade constant amount of inflammation in the background of your body. And it's doing particular things within cells and changing different cellular receptors, which I won't go into now because it's a little bit complicated. But essentially, if that person then becomes infected with coronavirus, when the coronavirus goes in and binds to specific receptors within the cell, which it's very targeted to do, and that's what creates that inflammatory response and that cytokine storm that I was talking about before. In people with cardiovascular disease, like the hypertension, the type 2 diabetes, the obesity... They've got more, slightly more of these receptors and a greater amount of constant inflammation just hanging around in the background. So, then when the coronavirus starts to kick up some inflammation, it's already starting from a higher baseline. This then means that it's like throwing kerosene onto a fire, it just causes a huge um, inflammation response. That then is more likely to cause more severe symptoms and complications in that individual versus an individual that doesn't have those pre existing conditions. So, do be aware if you fit into that at risk. Uh, population and be making sure you're following the preventative measures, which I'll talk about in a second. Other people that need to be very aware of this is, of course, immunocompromised individuals as well, because if you're immunocompromised, like if you're on immunosuppressant medications, which you may be taking if you have an autoimmune condition, or chemotherapeutic agents, like if you're undergoing treatment for cancer through chemo or through radiotherapy, um this immune compromise, meaning that your immune system can't mount an appropriate immune response effectively, may mean that you're more likely to get overrun with that infection. Now, other people that may have thought that they're at risk, and I've spoken to some people who are concerned about this, are people who are pregnant or asthmatics, or smokers, or people with existing lung conditions. Now, interestingly, this hasn't been shown to put people at any greater risk. It's great to know that women who are pregnant are, if anything, slightly protected. um, And that seems to be because of the hormonal changes that are taking place, specifically that to the hormone uh, melatonin, which helps us sleep, Uh, means that you're more likely to control some of that inflammation from the infection, and it won't actually be... Um, as severe and thankful to see some research that's showing that it doesn't seem that if a lady with um, who's pregnant and gets coronavirus it doesn't seem to have any impact on that child when it's born which is great or create any complications through that pregnancy Um, smokers don't actually seem to be at any greater risk from what some of the studies have been showing uh, and asthmatics because of the immune systems the way it's dysfunctional in asthma it's almost counterweighting the way that the COVID-19 wants to create inflammation and what I mean by that is that There's different, if you think about different branches of your immune system, if your immune system turns left or it wants to turn right. Now, COVID will make it turn a hard left and create a huge amount of inflammation. What's happening in asthma is it's actually making the immune system steer to the right. So it kind of counterweights what the immune response is and they don't seem to be at any greater risk. And if anything, it might be slightly protective. We see the same thing also going with um, low-risk populations is we see that the children seem to be um, thankfully very unaffected by this. Um, again, due to some of the changes that are happening within children, it tends to mean that they don't get the same severe inflammatory response. They may come down with some mild symptoms or they may be asymptomatic, not have any symptoms at all. Um, so thankfully, it's not seeming to be critical for children. However, in saying all of this, we all need to play our part because it may not be affecting you that much, but you may then pass it on to someone who it may. And that may be a loved one or that may be through two or three degrees of separation. And that's where we just need to be um, following the guidelines around hygiene and social distancing so that the 80% of us that will have mild symptoms from this are fine, but we don't want to pass it on to the other 20% that will have more severe complications from it. Now, with regards to the actual infection itself, I talked about some of the symptoms before. Now, if you're exposed to the infection, how long is it until you actually start to experience symptoms? Well, from what we see is that the incubation period of how long it'll sort of stay in hiding in your body until it starts to produce those symptoms can be anywhere from 2 to 14 days. On average, it tends to be 5 to 6 days. So if you were infected today, it'd be in sort of 5 days' time, that on average, you would be starting to show some symptoms. Often, this can be within 48 hours. However, in some cases, it's even been sort of two, three weeks. And again, remembering that some people don't show symptoms at all. So, there was a study that was done on a cruise ship uh, recently. They had a a bunch of people on there that were infected, and they actually found that 50% of the people who were infected were not showing symptoms whatsoever. So, while you could be, and I say in inverted commas, infected, you may not actually know it. You may not be showing any signs or symptoms. You may not even be feeling that much different, but you've still got the ability to transmit the disease. And remembering that that's part of the issue here is not just how it can affect you, but how it can be affecting others. Now, once you, if you do are unfortunate and do become infected, how long do you stay contagious for is a question that people have asked because obviously you'd go into self-isolation, you would minimize your contact with individuals so you didn't spread that to anyone. So how long does that need to stay for? And as we've pretty much seen around the world, they've been encouraging this self-isolation for two weeks if you've been likely to come in contact with someone. And you know that is backed by the research. So it's generally once you have got it, um, so if you are infected, you'll still be contagious for generally sort of two, maybe up to three weeks. Typically those symptoms will last for five days and then it would be another sort of week and and a half that you may still well be contagious for. So you want to be following those guidelines around if you've come into contact with someone who has been positive or if you know you're positive yourself, be isolating yourself for at least two weeks. Now, If you're not sure if you have it and you're worried about um, being positive, you've got some of those symptoms I described before, how can you go about getting tested for it? Well, currently in Australia, the situation is, and I believe it's the same in New Zealand, so I'm not sure how they're running it in the rest of the world. But here in Australia, we're only testing people who have currently come back from overseas because they likely they have got a higher risk of coming in contact with someone who's positive or have come in contact with someone who's positive themselves. Um, So you need to be displaying the symptoms, have come in contact with someone who's positive, or have been at great risk of coming in contact with someone who's positive, and then they'll do the testing. Now the testing is they take two swabs, they take one from the back of your throat, they take one from high up in your sinus cavities, and um, that kind of testing it's a little bit uncomfortable, but a small price to pay for being find out what's happening. You will then generally get those results in forty eight hours. Is the state in Australia I believe at the moment and. You will find out in 48 hours, typically if you're positive, it might take 72 hours to find out if you're negative because they're prioritizing telling people that are positive first. So within two to three days, you'd find out the results. In that time, you'd obviously be isolating yourself and making sure that you're not passing that on until you find out what the situation is. If you suspect that you have the symptoms and you don't fit into that category, what can you do? So if you, for instance, haven't come in contact with someone that you know has been positive, but you're developing the symptoms and you're a little bit uh, suspicious, then be isolating yourself be following the strict guidelines and isolating yourself for two weeks. If the symptoms worsen, be taking yourself along to definitely be seeing some medical advice and attention. But you will generally start to see, as I said, within a couple of days to typically five to six days, you should start to see some symptoms if you think um, you've come in contact with someone. And if you are already seeing those symptoms and you suspect you have it, then wait out that two week period and by then you should um, be you know starting to minimize your risk of being infectious then obviously even i would say for that week afterwards so that third week be really making sure you're keeping your distance and not touching things if when you are going out in public or being around people just so that you're minimizing that spread so for those that are fitting into the majority of us here that are mindful of this pandemic and are wanting to make sure that we don't contract it. What can we do? So how do you keep yourself safe? Firstly, stressing the hygiene rules here and guidelines about frequently washing your hands. Now, I know this seems really simple and you think, hang on, this is a huge pandemic, you know, like is just simply washing my hands with soap going to be enough. And it actually turns out that it is because when you use soapy water, the soap actually breaks down the structure of the virus cells And it breaks it apart and it activates the virus, apparently. And so that will stop it from being um, active and being able to infect you. This is why when you're out in public at the moment... I mean, in Australia, we're really minimizing uh, interactions out in public and you're only really going out if you have to for essential things. When you are out there, be making sure that you're not touching things and touching your face to transfer that. If you're touching things, then be washing your hands... The best is with soapy water. So when you're out and about, you might use hand sanitizer or you might have some alcohol wipes. So 70% alcohol will also be quite effective at destroying that virus and inactivating it. Hand sanitizer is your next best option after the soap or the alcohol. Um, So you might be frequently washing your hands, wiping them down, and then when you get home, wash your hands with soapy water and don't be touching your face um, in between that. And also wipe down anything that you've been touching when you've been out and about. So if you've been going to the groceries um, store to be getting things, then be, you know, wiping down your your cards or your wallet or your bag or whatever you've been using there. Um, And, you know, being mindful of things like your door handle, your steering wheel. So what I've been advising a lot of people to do would be to keep some hand sanitizer or some alcohol wipes in your car. And um, have some gloves so that when you go out to do your shopping, you can put on the gloves, you can do your errands, and then you can come take off the gloves, and then you don't touch anything in your car because it could stay in your car then and then tomorrow or the next day when you get in your car, you could then get get it back from there um, and if you 're not using the gloves, then to be wiping your hand down before you're then you know driving away, for instance. Um, The other thing, and seems quite simple to be doing, is again what the government guidelines are saying is to be following social distancing. So that's the 1.5 metres away. You're doing this so that you're not inhaling other people's droplets that are the moisture that's breathed out from their um, exhalations in the air and that you're just also minimising any kind of contact there. Now I know that both of these seem really quite simple, but there's some very impressive studies and there's some even things that you can type into YouTube and you know see the effects of social distancing on um, if people just separate themselves by that distance just how dramatically it can stop that from spreading. Because if people don't distance themselves, what happens is they show that coronavirus will actually transmit for every one person that has it, they'll give it to about another three people. Now that doesn't seem like a lot, but what you'll actually find is that that'll compound really quickly. And so that'll then start to add up where if you just follow social guideline, the, the social distancing guidelines, it can, what they call flatten that curve, and it can stop that from compounding. And one person doesn't spread it to, to three and so on and so forth. That actually then just minimizes that spread. So it's not difficult. It's very simple uh, and, it, and it works. So just be making sure that we're following those guidelines. And it doesn't just apply to people who are sick, remember, because you could very well have it, but you don't know. And you could be going, oh, look, I'm fine. I'll go catch up with my friends. And unknowingly, you pass it on. And that would be a horrible situation to be in, to be compromising the health and safety of your friends or your loved ones um, just because you were being irresponsible. So we all need to be playing our part there. Now, besides washing your hands frequently and social distancing, there's a couple of things that we can be doing to be helping to support our own health of our immune system and our general physiology. So specific ingredients are things like zinc. Uh, you want about 40, 50 milligrams of zinc a day. Vitamin D, at least 2,000 IU and up of vitamin D. Vitamin C, about two grams of vitamin C a day. These are just general ingredients to be supporting your immune system not necessarily trialed against covid but have been shown to be beneficial to improve your immunity uh, you've also got herbal ingredients that have been shown to be beneficial in boosting the immune response and regulating that also down regulating some of the inflammation that you get when you have a cold or a flu so some of these are things like medicinal mushrooms now these are Not your ordinary mushrooms that you'd be using for cooking, although you can get some of these for cooking. Um, But you may have heard of some of these like reishi, shiitake, cordyceps, coriolis. These are medicinal mushrooms that are used as essentially like herbal formulas and they help to support the immune system. Um, We've also got other ingredients like elderberry. Um, We've also got um, other ingredients That herbal ingredients like astragalus can certainly be helping, Um, lemon balm, these ingredients can be helping to raise the immune response. That's very much from a protective and preventative measure. So you're just supporting yourself so you're in the best stage, so in the instance that you do happen to come in contact with it, your body can mount an appropriate immune response and deal with it accordingly. Because what's different to this new COVID versus the previous coronaviruses is, as I mentioned, it's morphed a little bit and it invades the cell. The immune system can't seek and destroy it like it normally would with any other infection. And so it gets a big running head start and then that creates all that inflammation and then the body's then trying to help contain that. And it's, it's trying to play catch up on that. So anything you can do to support your immune system will help protect you as much as possible. Now, in saying that, there's a lot of things you can do beyond ingredients that directly support and stimulate your immune system which is supporting your lifestyle and your general health now one of the things that comes up here that's certainly pertinent right now is minimizing stress because while some of the population has unfortunately contracted the coronavirus a lot of the population are suffering from the effects of stress from this pandemic and understandably so. So we need to be helping to do two things here. Firstly, you want to minimize your stress. And secondly, you want to support your resilience. So firstly, we minimize our stress because we don't wanna be adding further to that stress that stress will actually contribute to weakening our immune system and driving that inflammation, which can worsen infections. So I don't mean to scare you, but it's just want to motivate you about how it is important that we keep our stress in place. So ways that we can be doing this is every day be trying to find at least 20 minutes where you can engage in something that you enjoy To get yourself, if you are feeling in a stressed uh, and affected mindset, to get yourself out of that into a position where you can engage in something more positive and uplifting for you. Now, that might look like anything from listening to some of your favorite music or... um, engaging in your particular hobbies, playing with your kids or playing with pets, doing some exercise. And I'll go through some of these in a second. But what happens is you will literally change your brainwave activity and your stress response That can change not only your mood but it will change your whole body's physiology, improving your immune system and stopping this constant burden that some of us may be starting to feel now in Australia as we start to get a couple weeks deep into this situation. We need to be making sure that we're keeping things in check and looking after our general well-being. Now, the next thing to be doing to be decreasing your stress is to be stopping that onslaught of information that's coming in as we may be reading the news, looking on social media, talking to friends and family, and getting swept up in that hype. That constant negative news is making us ramp up our stress response. And understandably, we need to be prepared for the situation. I'm not saying we should be ignorant and naive but it doesn't mean that we should spend you know, six of our waking hours obsessing and looking into this and stressing about it. So my suggestion that I have here is similar to what I suggest for people with um, chronic debilitating diseases, is that when you're in a stressful situation that's feeling overwhelming to you, we need to find a way to compartmentalize that. And we need to just find a section of our day and time in our day where we're allowed to deal with it and then we deal with it then, and then we get on with the rest of our day and our lives through the rest of the time. So what this might look like is you might say, okay, one hour or maybe two hours, and I'd say two hours max, but you know maybe half an hour to an hour a day, you're allowed to deal with the situation around the COVID pandemic. So that might mean watching the news, keeping up to date with the government regulations, speaking to your family or friend or prepping for whatever kind of logistical stuff you need to be doing for your home. You determine how much time it is that you want for that, and then you determine what time that's going to be. So is that gonna be around the news you know, in the evening, or you're gonna do it first thing in the morning? You set yourself your time, you deal with it then and only then, and then you put it aside. So this then stops us from constantly um, overworking this in our mind and constantly ramping up that stress response during the day. Limiting that time will help limit that stress input on our nervous system. Then focusing our intent and our mind onto more positive things. So as I mentioned before, finding time to engage in more enjoyable, relaxing, uplifting um, uh, activities. So... Other things such as, you know, I mentioned the playing with your children or your pets, listening to music, you know, engaging in your hobbies. A lot of us may be finding that we're now working from home. We're now saving time for commutes or we may find that we've got more time on our hands. It's a great time to pick up the paintbrush or dust off that instrument you haven't played for years and start to engage in something like that. Creative pursuits will change your mind and your brainwave activity and they do encourage relaxation and decrease stress. We could also be doing simpler things. So even watching comedies, lighthearted movies, doing fun things like that. Now is not the best time to be sitting down and watching like Pandemic on Netflix, right? Like it's not the best time to trawl through and watch all those horrors you've been wanting to watch. They will stimulate a stress response and our brain doesn't differentiate from that. We've already got enough background stress at the moment. So... Don't be adding to that with stressful thriller-style movies. Instead, be going for the more lighter-hearted, uplifting, enjoyable movies. Um, we can also be doing things like engaging in relaxation techniques and activities. So, simple things like meditation. Now, You don't need to be as calm as a Zen monk to be able to to meditate. If you've never meditated before, now's a really good time to start. It has proven benefits for your mood. It will change your brainwave activity. It will calm you down. It will help improve your sense of well-being. If you're wanting to get into meditation and you've never kind of ventured into that before there are a bunch of apps that you can use that will help guide you through this and very approachable for first-time users so popular apps are things like calm headspace waking up is another one Um, these will walk you through and they've got different exercises where you might just be listening to tranquil sounds they'll have guided meditations speaking of calm In the paid version of that, it will allow you to listen to what they call sleep stories, which are narrated by famous familiar voices, calming voices that you know. And I know a lot of patients that say that they're a savior to them that help them fall asleep. So it could be something that you check out. I don't have um, any involvement in these apps, but I know that they're very popular with a lot of individuals. And I've seen patients have some great success with these. But whatever it is that works for you, even if it's just slowing down and focusing on some simple breathing... Anything to get you out of your head, slow that mind down to help calm you down and relax you will be really beneficial for your well-being right now. So that's decreasing the stress. Now, in terms of boosting your resilience, one of the most important things we can do every single day is to sleep and to sleep well. Now, that can be a challenge for some of us ordinarily. Some of us, because of the stress and the hype right now, may be finding that we're struggling a little bit with sleep. So a couple of little tips to help you improve your sleep is following what they call sleep hygiene. This is things that help your body wind down at the end of the night and fall asleep. So that's things like dimming the lights and at night to be making sure that you're getting No light that stimulates through your eyes and keeps your brain awake. You need to be exposed to dim lighting two hours until your body starts to produce that hormone melatonin that helps us switch off and start to fall into sleep. So that means I generally recommend turning off the lights in the ceiling, run off lamps um, later in the evening and be starting to slow down and calm down. So again, don't be watching stimulating things on TV that are going to get you all jacked up, but be, this is a good time to be dimming the lights, reading a nice novel or uh, engaging in that hobby or trying that meditation. Um, don't be sticking yourself in front of your phone. This is not the time to be spending your 30 minutes or whatever to be finding about the COVID pandemic. Do that away from your sleeping time. Sleep will produce huge benefits to our immune system and it's also very anti-inflammatory so it's one of the best things you can do for your stress and for your immune system is to sleep well every day and they find that people who are getting less sleep like less than six hours sleep a night it doesn't do great things for our immune system so ideally we're looking at seven to eight hours sleep a night and try and do that before mid before midnight so ideally you know 10 o'clock is kind of the more latest time you really want to be looking at getting to sleep because the more sleep you can get before midnight tends to be more restorative. But everyone's body clock is a little bit different, which I appreciate. Now, another thing to boost your resilience is good old exercise. Regular exercise will improve our mood, support our brain chemistry. And now that you can't get to the gym, there's still a million home workouts floating around on the internet at the moment. So find one that suits you. Just so long as you're moving your body um, and ideally getting that heart rate up for around about 20 minutes, three times a week. So whatever exercise that is for you, then great. If you're in a situation where you're able to do that and get out in nature, then even better, because if we can get out in nature, there's been proven benefits. So you might just go for a walk through the park, go for a little bush walk if you're lucky enough to have that in close proximity, and getting through nature will help calm down our stress response and helps to boost our resilience. Other exercise and more relaxation techniques might be things like yoga, tai chi, qigong. Again, there's plenty of instructional videos out there on the internet. And I've noticed some really great teachers start to put more trainings of this online now that people can't make it to -to face-to-face classes, which is great. So now could be the perfect opportunity for you to take up one of these activities if you've been meaning to try them out. Then... Looking after ourselves generally is the most important thing for boosting our resilience. Now, this isn't rocket science, and I don't have fancy new. Um, tips here that are specific to COVID. It's just the same foundational stuff that applies every other day. To give you a rundown of what this is, is, this is, I've mentioned sleep, I've mentioned exercise. This is then eating regularly. So making sure you're getting some protein with every meal and making sure you're eating well. Decreasing your caffeine, decreasing your simple sugars and carbohydrates. So making sure you're not binging on chocolate and simple sugars, but having well-rounded meals that looks like plant-based foods, some whole grains and some proteins some complex carbohydrates can help to balance those blood sugar levels keep you stable regulate your mood support your resilience be making sure you're drinking plenty of water so two liters of water a day this isn't just good for flushing out the body for your health but this will also help with your mood and your stress levels um, minimizing the caffeine I already mentioned and another thing to minimize is the alcohol lots of memes floating around on the internet about how much people are drinking these days um, while it might feel like it's doing good things for you today it doesn't help your stress resilience and handle the situation tomorrow so ideally you really want to be keeping it to one to two drinks per sitting and only a couple of drink uh, a couple of sittings per week Um, making sure you're getting some sunshine every day. So 10 to 20 minutes, depending on your skin type, getting out in the sun will help you get some vitamin D, which is also good for your immune system and your mood, but it will also have greater, more holistic effects to your body. Um, I've mentioned going through nature as well, so that'll cover that if you're getting out into the sunshine. And um, one thing that you can be doing if you're feeling like you're quite stressed is practicing gratitude. If you're not familiar with this, jump online and just look up uh, gratitude journals. But essentially, the more that we can focus our mind on positive situations, the more it starts to rewire itself and we will start to notice that we are more positive and reducing our stress and improving our mood. Studies have shown that if you do this for 28 days straight, you will have a significant improvement in that mood and reduction in stress. So if you're finding that the current situation is getting on top of you, you're feeling overwhelmed, and uh, you're starting to get a little bit negative or stressed out, I would direct you towards um, following some gratitude practices. In short, what this looks like is write down five things that you're grateful for. Uh, You do this every day. Often it might be recommended to do when you wake up or before you go to sleep. And it doesn't have to be super complex. You might just be saying, I'm really grateful for my super comfortable bed and the fact that Um, everyone in my family is still safe and that we've got toilet paper or whatever it might be. And it starts to help your brain see the positive things and it then blurs the negative things into the background. So do be trying that out and you will notice um, significant uh, differences from that. And then lastly, another thing that helps improve our mood and help us in stressful times is obviously staying connected with our loved ones. This you know, is obviously going to be a little bit more challenging in the sense that you can't just drop around and hang out. But thankfully, with the world of technology that we live in, we've all got the ability to make voice calls and hang out on various different platforms and apps. Like I've heard of the app House Party that a lot of people are starting to use, which allows you to kind of get together with your friends and you can kind of watch the same movie on Netflix or whatever else. Again, making sure it's funny and lighthearted. But... Um, trying to then, you can still stay connected with your your friends and your family and your loved ones. So using technology to do that, I would just be saying, make sure that when you are connecting with each other, try not to be ramping each other up in the stress and talking about what stats you saw on the news and if you heard about this and this might be happening and feeding into that negativity. Instead, focus it towards more positive intent and be uplifting each other, engaging in more... um, You light-hearted and enjoyable conversations as opposed to falling into the trap of just talking about the current situation with COVID. But certainly connecting with each other helps to reduce our stress response. It has been shown to be helping improve mood and in times of tragedy like this, the more that we can connect with each other, the more that we can support each other can help to reduce everyone's burden. So that's about it for my directions on how we can be protecting ourselves at this current time. Hopefully that information has been useful for you to help focus on keeping that stress under control, looking after yourselves and not just your mental health, but also your immune health and some simple practices that we can all be doing. So following the guidelines around social distancing, around hygiene, about just doing some simple practical tips can stop you from... um, developing the infection and keep in mind that even if you think you are fine you could still have it and could be passing it on so everyone still needs to play their part and be responsible follow those guidelines and we can keep everyone safe hopefully that's been helpful for you please look after yourselves and take care thanks for listening to your health guide Any resources or links discussed in the episode can be found at metagenics.com.au. To help you continue on your health journey, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if you found this episode useful, please rate and review us. If you have any questions about how this information could relate to your health condition, please go and speak to your natural healthcare practitioner who can provide you with specific advice for your health needs.